0: This is History West Midlands.
1: In September 1909, Britain was shocked to learn that the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, had been attacked as he left Birmingham's Bingley Hall, when, despite a heavy police presence... ...suffragettes had climbed onto a nearby roof and hurled slates down at him. This was just one of a series of militant acts of defiance in Birmingham and the West Midlands... ...conducted by members of the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU... ...as they demanded votes for women. They set fire to buildings including libraries, smashed windows, planted bombs vandalised artwork and daubed the windows and walls of Birmingham Cathedral with their slogans. Many of them were then imprisoned and Winston Green became the first institution to implement the government policy of forcibly feeding hunger-striking women. Prior to this direct action, Women from Birmingham played an important role in a relentless constitutional campaign of rallies, petitions and meetings in which the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, put successive governments under pressure to enfranchise women. But the importance of Birmingham and the West Midlands in these suffrage campaigns has been largely forgotten. Now, historian Nicola Gould, ...tells their stories in her enthralling new book... ...Words and Deeds, Birmingham Suffragists and Suffragettes, 1832-1918. She talks to the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs.
2: I'm here today at the Library of Birmingham with Nicola Gould... ...who's the author of a really enthralling new book... ...on the little-known story of the Birmingham Suffragettes... ...and the Birmingham Suffrage Movement... When the women's suffrage movement is referenced, it's usually focused on Manchester and London. How important was Birmingham in the women's suffrage movement?
0: Birmingham was really important, not only in terms of the types of activities that happened in the city, which we can talk about later, But also I think in terms of its longevity, so in the 1830s we had the Chartist movement very active in Birmingham, but there was also a female component to that. There was a female political union which was established by the Chartist in 1838. It wasn't a group that was trying to get the vote, but it was certainly trying to get women involved in politics. There were many hundreds of women attended meetings in the city and it showed that they could be organised and that they were very interested in politics and how it affected them as women. But in the 1860s, the movement becomes important in Birmingham. At that time, there are lots of petitions, one main petition presented to Parliament by John Stuart Mill. And subsequently, this established many suffrage societies in the country, but most importantly in Birmingham. So in 1868, the Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society was established, one of the earliest. I think it was just beaten by the Suffrage Society in London and the one in Manchester, of course. So this shows that from the 1860s onwards, Women in Birmingham were attempting to get the vote. They were really politically motivated, very well organised. There were lots and lots of meetings held in Birmingham. So I think it is... Very important and I think it's perhaps one of the things that in Birmingham people don't quite realise that the suffrage movement was active for such a long time and then as it gained momentum it became very important in terms of the types of militant activity that we see happening across the country but lots of things happened in Birmingham and it's very important in terms of how the movement developed. Winston Green Prison in Birmingham was the first prison to forcibly feed hunger-striking suffragette prisoners, so there are lots of significant things that happened in Birmingham that I think people perhaps don't quite realise.
2: During the non-militant phase of the women's suffrage movement, who were the key figures in the city?
0: Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society was established by William and Caroline Taylor, who had moved to Birmingham, I think, in the early part of the 1860s. So in 1868, at their home in Edgbaston on Chad Road, they established the society. So they were very, very important. But really, it was their daughter, Catherine Taylor, who became Catherine Osler later on. She subscribed to the society as a 14-year-old. She continued her involvement throughout her whole life. She became the president of the society in 1901. So she's incredibly important. There are also women like Eliza Sturge from the famous Sturge family. Very important, gave lots of speeches, very well organized. She was elected to the school board in Birmingham. So there are these women who are forgotten, and there are lots of other women I think that perhaps we don't know about. Their names haven't been recorded, but we know that this society grew and grew as the years went on. The Suffrage Society was a much bigger organisation than the Birmingham branch of the Women's Social and Political Union, which was the militant side of the campaign. So there were many men and women who were members or subscribing members of the Suffrage Society.
2: You mentioned men. Were they really active?
0: Yes, so initially they were in the Suffrage Society. The president was actually the Reverend William Croskey, so men were very active within the society. They had the support of many local MPs in the city, George Dixon, for example. So men were fairly active in the Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society and I think in other suffrage societies across the country.
2: And reading your book, I think you make the point that this was very much based in Harborne, Edgbaston, yes, yep. the, shall we say, middle class or upper yeah. middle class parts of the city as it now is. What was the role of the working woman?
0: So I think obviously for working women, it's harder to be politically involved because, you know, you have a family to look after and you have a job to do. The Suffrage Society, Catherine Osler in particular, they were very mindful of this and they did go out and they were involved in some of the Cradley Heath work with the chain makers there. So they were very aware of how not having the vote affected working women you know women's suffrage was another element of campaigning that a lot of these people typically from nonconformist families living in birmingham were interested in so it was all part of this kind of idea of the civic gospel of improving civic life of improving the lives of working-class women and men and what was the
2: reaction of mm-hmm. the general populace
0: well, the meetings were all very well attended. Typically, they would have big meetings at the town hall. I think the reaction was fairly positive. I think it's not until the militant campaign starts that you see the reaction change a little bit. I think for the suffrage society members, you sort of get the sense that they're sort of tolerated or perhaps not taken seriously, you know, in the press. It's almost as if they just let them get on with it because they're not really doing anybody any harm. And I think it isn't until the militant campaign comes in that people think, oh, hang on, this is getting quite serious now. I think it's very frustrating. Certainly, women like Catherine Osler write about, you know, they're trying for years and years. You know, when you think that the society is established in 1868, they get so far all the time, they get some support from MPs, they get petitions, they get signatures on petitions, they present them to Parliament. It just never goes any further than that. They're constantly thwarted and constantly having to sort of regroup and start again. But what's impressive is that they do that, you know, they're so dedicated to the cause that they just continue campaigning. They know that eventually something will have to change. They have the faith that that will happen. But I think it's admirable when you think about how long, particularly Catherine Osler, her whole life is involved, not just in this campaign, but other campaigns as well. And she does social work. She's very interested in improving the lives of working-class women. But it's that dedication, I think, that they just keep going and they have to face the reaction of the press and MPs and you know being told to sort of, well, just carry on. And it's impressive, I think, to think about how dedicated they were.
2: And that's reflected in the cover of your book. There's a wonderful image, I think, from Punch, Mm. where there is this very determined woman pushing this very, very large boulder... Up a very steep incline that yeah. says Parliament, yeah, yeah. and that seems to me how it was because mm-hmm. it was almost an annual event, wasn't it? Yes, that there yeah. was a bill before Parliament for women. It suffrage. that
0: way, yes. And yes. Parliament
2: yeah. just shrugged its shoulders and yeah. bounced it back. They
0: always they could get enough support to present it. They just could never get enough support for it to go to a second reading, and that's partly one of the reasons that Emmeline Pankhurst establishes the Women's Social and Political Union because she sees this happening and she thinks, well, this is a huge waste of time. This is isn't working, what can we do? And this is, you know, the thoughts behind civil disobedience, protesting, you know, what we see happening in the militant campaign. When you read the reports of the Suffrage Society and sort of letters that people like Catherine Osler and Eliza Sturge write to the newspapers and pamphlets that they write, it is like pushing a rock (laughs) up a very steep hill.
2: But we have to recognise and be hugely impressed that they just kept going. So while you're impressed by them, and you obviously Mm recognise their efforts, Mm -hmm. do you think they were ever going to get anywhere until the campaign became militant?
0: It's a very difficult question to answer, because I think, you know, the fact that they were established in 1868, and by the time the WSPU were established in 1903, very little has changed. In some ways, you needed both. The National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, led by Millicent Fawcett, you know, they had extremely good arguments. They were dedicated campaigners. So you have to recognise that. But I think the militant campaign pushed it in a direction that maybe it was necessary for that to happen, you know, to get the attention of the press and of politicians and of the general public as well. So I think it's very difficult to say, would the suffrage societies have eventually got the vote? I think it's a difficult question.
2: It was 1903 in Manchester where things changed. How did they change?
0: So Emmeline Pankhurst, with Christabel and Sylvia, her two daughters, um, established the Women's Social and Political Union. Emmeline had been a member of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and I think they just recognised that they were not getting anywhere, that something had to change, that they had to force the issue. And so it was this idea of civil disobedience
2: as a tactic. When you say civil disobedience, obviously, and we'll talk about this in a moment, it became violent. Civil disobedience, one really, I guess, associates with the Gandhi approach Mm, of non-violence. Was the suffragette movement, were they intending it to be violent from the beginning?
0: I'm not sure that they could have foreseen that it would have become as violent as it did at times, but I think they were certainly prepared for that. And I think it was more about almost of shouting loudly. You know, the first thing that Emily Pankhurst did was go down to Parliament and she protested outside by raising her voice. And her daughter Christabel and her friend Annie Kenny protested at a, a political meeting in Manchester and were arrested. So I think it was just, you know, they'd seen women sitting patiently for a long time and perhaps not raising their voices and not drawing attention to themselves too much. And I think that was the thinking behind it, that they were going to have to shout loudly to get the attention and to get something done about this.
2: And here in Birmingham, where we had this large Mm. pool or group of Mm. women who have been involved in the Mm. constitutional campaign, the non-violent campaign, were there many of that group who then decided, yes, we need to take this to a new level.
0: Well, there were some, it's quite interesting, that I think there were a number of women who were members of the Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society, but then subsequently became involved with the WSPU, but often were members of both organisations at the same time, which is interesting. And there were some joint meetings held between the two organisations. So when the WSPU weren't carrying out militant activities, they would hold a ceasefire, then both organisations and some of the other suffrage organisations would jointly campaign together. Catherine Osler particularly has some sympathy with why the WSPU has appeared. She can understand the frustration, but for the constitutional campaigners, this is not the right road to take. You know, they think that militant campaigning will damage the cause, that politicians won't listen to it, and it's going to do more
2: harm than good and who were the key figures then in the suffragette movement here in Birmingham in
0: Birmingham so the WSPU tended to send women in from other parts of the country to become organisers and mobilise the local area. And then they would move them on after a while. So there were a number of organisers in Birmingham over the years. Gladys Keevil is quite an interesting woman, very sort of well-educated, smart woman. She was probably one of the first to really get the campaign going in Birmingham in about 1908. There had been a couple of organisers before her who came for a sort of short period of time. And they had offices in central Birmingham, so you could go in and sort of buy suffrage literature and votes for women for example and they would organize meetings all across the city so after Gladys Keevil there were some other organizers Dorothy Evans was sent here there were local teachers Gladys Hazel was a teacher at King Edwards girls school in Aston who actually left her job because she was becoming so involved with the WSPU and had been arrested at a demonstration There are also women like Bertha Ryland, who was a local woman. She's incredibly interesting. Her parents, William and Alice Ryland, were subscribers to the Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society, as was Bertha for a short time. But then she joins the WSPU, and I think her mother, I think Alice Ryland, is also involved in the WSPU. But Bertha is involved from about 1907 to 8, up until the First World War. And she goes around the Midlands, setting up all sorts of meetings. She's constantly involved in demonstrations, She's very militant, she becomes increasingly militant and carries out some interesting actions in the city. Um, There are also people like Hilda Burkett, who isn't from Birmingham itself but from the West Midlands. She's one of the women who is arrested at the Bingley Hall incident in 1909, so this is the first of major militant incident in the city, when the Prime Minister Aswith comes to talk to the Liberal Party about the budget proposals. The suffragettes decide to come and demonstrate, and a group of 10 women are subsequently arrested, including Hilda Burkett. And they are the first group of women who are forcibly fed in Winston Green Prison after they go on hunger strike. So there are a number of women, and um, we can trace all this through Votes for Women, which is the the magazine that they produced. And it names the organisers, and it mentions particular women and the kinds of things that they've been doing.
2: So you mentioned that the Prime Minister came and there was a disturbance. Can you expand on that a little and also then highlight some of the other really high-profile events that took place here in Birmingham?
0: So by 1909, there have been a number of militant activities across the country. And Asquith, the Prime Minister, has announced he's going to come to Birmingham to meet the Liberal Party members to talk about the budget. He'll talk at the Bingley Hall, which is where now the um, Symphony Hall is on Broad Street. By this point in the militant campaign, the suffragettes, they mobilise, they will send in a group of women to demonstrate at the meeting. The police know that this will happen, so there's lots of arrangements made. There are many hundreds of police on duty that evening. Around about New Street station and around roundabout Broad Street in the area. So they're expecting a demonstration. They know that this will happen. And what's quite interesting, that really it's only 10 women that cause this huge demonstration to be so dramatic and that they require this number of police just for 10 women. But they have all these plans. It's really interesting to think about what they're doing. So they have some women are posted at New Street station. They've got a couple of women who have been sent up from London that position themselves behind Bingley Hall on Cambridge Street, they manage to get onto the roof of a timber merchant's premises. So we have records of the women throwing slates down and they're shouting at the top of their voices, votes for women. So they're eventually taken Off the roof, there's all these stories in the newspapers of how the police have to use a fire hose to try and get them down, but apparently the jet of water isn't strong enough and it all sounds very farcical. But they are hauled off, potentially quite roughly. There are another group of about six women actually outside the hall. They try and get into the meeting as well, so one of the issues is that no women are allowed into this meeting unless they have a special ticket. And this also means that somebody like Catherine Osler, who is the president of the Women's Liberal Association, she does get into the meeting, but she has to really push to get into it. So for the Suffrage Society, it's very difficult as well, because many of them are members of the Liberal Party. It's very difficult that they're dealing with Asquith, who's so against women having the vote. So at the same time, there's a Suffrage Society meeting at the Birmingham and Midland Institute. And when he returns to New Street, there are... Missiles thrown at the train, so in total ten women are arrested they're all carted off eventually to Winston Green prison. They all commence hunger strike, so this is also a new part of the tactic so one suffrage prisoner before this has gone on hunger strike in Holloway prison, but she's released after a certain number of days so in Winston Green, they have the ten women they all decide to go on hunger strike. And there are lots of documents in the National Archives that show the discussions that were had about how to deal with this problem. They knew that the suffragettes were now using this as a tactic and they really didn't know what to do. So there are interesting letters between the Birmingham chief constable to the Home Office. And he says that, you know, we have to deal with this problem. These women should be punished. And then the idea of forcibly feeding is discussed. Now, this has already happened in Winston Green with some male prisoners. So the chief constable argues that this is something that Birmingham can do successfully. So the Home Office agreed that this is the solution to the problem. Then they start forcibly feeding the ten women, and two of the women... The two that threw the roof slates from the timber merchants on Cambridge Street, they are kept in for longer and forcibly fed for a longer period of time. So the WSPU then subsequently decide to try and sue the government on behalf of these women prisoners, which means that there are lots of records. Officers were sent into the prison to interview the women and there are statements in Birmingham City archives from each of the women talking about their experience of being forcibly fed. So it's an extremely important part of the story in terms of the Votes for Women campaign. It's something I think that probably people don't realise happened, first of all, in Birmingham. And it really signals a change in the campaign because now most of the women who are arrested go on hunger strike, fully aware that they will be forcibly fed. And there are lots and lots of accounts by these women talking about their experience. And it's extremely harrowing. To read them, it affected many of them physically for many years afterwards. But they still went into it knowing that this would happen, I think, demonstrating just how dedicated to the cause they were.
2: And this initial episode starts or kicks off a major series of militant events here in the city.
0: Yeah, 1909 is kind of the start of the militant activity in the city. It then dies down a little bit because. The government then promised that there will be a conciliation bill. Part of that will deal with votes for women. So it's very frustrating for the women because Asquith doesn't really want to give women the vote, but he sort of gives them these little glimmers of hope every now and then. And, you know, he always goes back on his word and it never comes to fruition for them. So in 1910, there's a big demonstration in London, which is now known as the Black Friday demonstration, where women are treated extremely violently by the police and also members of the public as well. They have a ceasefire after that, it dies down a little bit. 1911 is interesting because they have the census and so the WSPU and some of the other suffrage organisations decide that what they can do is evade the census so they cannot be counted. This is how they will show their protest: they won't be part of the census. So in Birmingham there are census parties, as they call them, where women can congregate together on the night of the census collection to make sure that they're not included. Or they can meet the census enumerator and make their protest on the actual documentation itself. So we've got some lovely examples of women who write on the document votes for women to make it clear their thoughts on this. And then it's really sort of towards the end of 1912, 1913 and 1914 where it becomes the militant campaign really intensifies. So in Birmingham there are many, many actions that happen including lots of incidents of arson Most notably, the Carnegie Library in Northfield is completely destroyed by fire in February of 1914. All the books are destroyed. They leave behind a copy of the suffragette newspaper and they write on it, give women the vote. And they also leave behind a pamphlet that Christabel Pankhurst wrote called The Great Scourge and How to End It, with another note that says this is to start your new library. The cathedral in Birmingham, St Philip's Cathedral, is vandalised. They sneak in, I think, on a Saturday evening. They stay in overnight and they cover the interior with white painted slogans, protesting against forcible feeding, but also protesting against the church not speaking out against forcible feeding. And of course, the usual give women the Vote" slogans as well. And one of the last militant actions to take place in the city before the war is declared in August of 1914, is that a painting in the city art gallery is slashed by Bertha Ryland, who I've already spoken about. She's involved in lots of different things, some of which we know about. I suspect she's involved in some of the arson attacks, but we we don't have any real evidence to demonstrate that. Nobody was arrested for burning down the Northfield Library. But Bertha Ryland, in June 1914, goes into the Art Gallery with the full intention, obviously, of slashing a painting. She has a note with her that explains why she's doing it. She has this meat cleaver that she uses, and she slashes a painting which, unfortunately was on loan to the museum at the time so it's no longer in the museum collection but she slashes it three times and of course is immediately arrested taken to the police station on Steelhouse Lane and then eventually to Winston Green where again she goes on hunger strike and is forcibly fed
2: But towards the end of this period 1913-1914 there also seems to have been a resurgence of the non-violent campaign
0: Certainly So the Birmingham Women's Suffrage Society is active throughout all of this What's frustrating for Catherine Osler is that their activities are never paid much attention. They don't really get a lot of newspaper coverage. They're working hard as these years go on, constantly having meetings, campaigning during general elections, for example. But in 1913, there's a pilgrimage organised by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which starts in Scotland I think but it travels through the West Midlands and all the local suffrage societies join in this big pilgrimage and they finally meet in London in Hyde Park so it's a huge number I think 250,000 women meet there and this does capture the attention of Asquith. He meets with Fawcett and a deputation from the NUWSS after the pilgrimage and I think he's starting to think well hang on something perhaps does have to change. And, you know, these women have been campaigning for a long time. He doesn't meet with deputations from the WSPU, for example, because of their tactics. But certainly the Women's Suffrage Society continue all along. They're constantly campaigning. Their membership increases as the years go on. As I say, this pilgrimage is a very successful demonstration that they have organised.
2: And here in Birmingham, there was also a groundswell, was there not, of a militant reaction to the suffragettes in terms of threats that were made?
0: Yes, so particularly in 1914, there are some quite interesting accounts in the newspapers of groups that we don't really know who these groups were, but there was one in particular called the Mysterious 50 who wrote to the local newspapers and they basically set out a sort of manifesto of how they think they will deal with the suffragettes. This is after the vandalising of the cathedral. It's published in the newspapers. The editor refers to this letter as being amusing... But when you read it, it's actually incredibly disturbing. So whoever this group is, we still don't know who any of the members were. And it does seem to sort of fizzle out. But what they propose to do is extremely violent. You know, they talk about how they're going to tar and feather women. They're going to disfigure them with acid. They're going to destroy their premises. The WSPU offices on John Bright Street is targeted and they cover the door with some sort of paint, which I think has acid in it, turns out. And there were groups of students that would go round to the offices on John Bright Street and try and break in and vandalise the office. And there are some accounts of women in the streets being targeted by groups of men when they discover that the woman is a suffragette, there is a physical attack. Even before then, the women talk about how when they're out on the street selling votes for women, they have to stand in the curb because you can't stand on the pavement to sell these newspapers. And, of course, there will be people who will be abusive towards them. But it feels to me that it does get quite dark. And the reaction, particularly of this group, the Mysterious 50, it's so personal, you know, it's physical threats of violence which I think completely outweighs what the women were doing. You know, you may not have liked what they were doing, but they certainly weren't going round tarring and feathering people or, you know, disfiguring people. I mean, even going back to 1910 and the Black Friday demonstration in London, again, there were terrible accounts of how the women were physically abused by the police
2: and also by members of the public while the police stood by and didn't do anything. Reading your book, there are two things of many that really struck me. One was the actual extent of violence during force feeding. We talk about force feeding glibly as if our tube was inserted. And the second thing that really strikes me is the... The fact that the suffragette movement today would be, in many countries and probably even here and by some of the media, discussed in terms of being a terrorist mm-hmm. organisation. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about those two things when you look at the history?
0: I think in terms of the forcible feeding, there are two things. I think it's the accounts themselves of what the women went through. And as I said, when you read them, they are extremely harrowing. So they talk about the physical implementation of the tube which is sometimes forced down their throats but often it's a nasal tube that's used. There are interviews with women that were recorded in the 70s, one in particular of a Birmingham WSPU member Maud Smith who still suffered then in her 90s from terrible nosebleeds because the membranes had been so badly damaged when she was being forcibly fed. She also talks about how the liquid wasn't completely liquidised, so there were chunks of food, bread, whatever it was, they were trying to feed them, being forced down. Bertha Ryland herself, she has a kidney complaint, and I'm not clear whether this was caused by forcibly feeding or if it was pre-existing, but it certainly exacerbated and made far worse. So she really suffers and has to have an operation, I think in 1914, after she's released from prison. There's also the number of incidents of women being forcibly fed. So somebody like Hilda Burkett, for example, who is in and out of prison over a five-year period after the Bingley Hall incident. She stays in Birmingham for a little while, but then she goes off. She becomes one of these itinerant militant suffragettes travelling around the country, being involved in all sorts of incidents. She is forcibly fed... I think it's 292 times over that five-year period. So each time a woman is forcibly fed, the prison authorities will document it. So in the National Archives, for example, there is a huge file of papers relating to Hilda Burkett when she's in Holloway Prison. And it describes her mood and what happened on that particular occasion when they forcibly fed her. When I sat and did that research in the National Archives, they brought this stack of papers and I didn't quite realise at first what it was. And then I realised each slip of paper documented each time Hilda Burkett was forcibly fed. And the fact that it was such a huge chunk of papers really brought home to me the experience of these women. And what really strikes you is that, you know, they're not forcibly fed once and then they go home. They willingly go to prison knowing that they will probably go on hunger strike and they will be then forcibly fed. So it's
2: martyrdom.
0: I would probably prefer to see it as just sheer dedication. And I think they're probably really angry and I think they think at that point they can't give up. The government didn't want any of these women to die on their watch, as it were, in prison. They wanted to avoid this idea of martyrdom. But, you know, for the women to continually do that, this is how dedicated they were to the cause. They knew that the risks were there, that they could die, but they knew that it was for a worthy cause.
2: And this escalation, it seems to me that we're also fortunate that civilians were mm. killed because by the end we're talking a potentially a bombing campaign.
0: They were always incredibly careful and Emily Pankhurst frequently said that the only physical harm should be to themselves. So they deliberately made sure that members of the public weren't harmed. Yes, things did escalate. There is an incident in the Midlands, actually, where they do attempt to set a bomb on the canal and there are no locks on this particular part of the canal. The bomb didn't go off. But had it happened, then potentially, yes, there would have been a loss of life. This is one of the things that is quite puzzling for me in some ways because they are so adamant that they won't harm anybody and they know that the harm is happening to themselves and, as I say, they're willing to take that on. But yes, it could have been that a member of the public could have been caught up in this. Thankfully, nobody was. And yes, there is an escalation. But I think, you know, it's easy in some ways to talk about what they did and to say, was it terrorism? Was it not? What do we think about these women being violent? We must always remember they were fighting for the vote. You know, this is something, again, that we take for granted today. You know, we have huge numbers who don't bother to vote. Because, you know, it's their choice, isn't it? But these women desperately wanted the vote and everything that would come with it. They wanted a say in their own lives. You know, most of them were taxpayers. They weren't part of the democratic process. So I think for me, sometimes I think we get a little bit too sidetracked with the sort of sensationalism and the things that they were doing which are very interesting. You know, it is an interesting thing to think about that they adopted these militant tactics, but we must
2: never forget that it was for such an important cause. Thank you very much indeed. congratulations again on your book. It's a fascinating read, very, very enjoyable, but most importantly, very, very insightful. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Nicola also tells the story of women's struggles for the right to vote in our fascinating film, Deeds Not Words, The Story of the Birmingham Suffragettes, which is available at www.historywm.com or on YouTube. And you can now order her book, Words and Deeds, Birmingham Suffragists and Suffragettes, 1832-1918, on our website or from Amazon UK.